Our scripture reading is Daniel 1, 8 through 20. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. Um, you know, we just started a new series last week that we entitled Faithful, the Gospel According to Daniel. And uh, so I'm excited to be taking you into the second half of chapter one. If you we're not here last week. I'm going to do a very brief recap to catch us up. And of course, this is a story. It's historical. And these are real things that happened in Jewish history. And I want to say that it could be something that happens in your history, like right now, today. That the God who is speaking through the book of Daniel and through the scriptures could show up in your life and say something to you today that you could leave differently. When is the last time that you experienced what we might call redemptive heartburn, right? Not, not the, the physiological symptom, but that the gospel is warming your heart up so that you feel it burning within you. There's that beautiful story near the end of the gospels where Jesus is having a conversation. It's post-resurrection. He's with a couple of disciples who do not recognize him, and they don't know that it's Jesus, and so they're asking him questions, and they're intrigued that he doesn't know about this person named Jesus of Nazareth, who was just crucified and resurrected. But at the end of that conversation where Jesus makes himself clearly known to them, and then he disappears, those men or those women, those disciples say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when Jesus opened up the Bible for us? When he showed us what the story was really all about. Maybe part of my question is, when is the last time that your heart burned within you for the gospel, for the good news, that we would sing about it, that we would live because of it, and that we would say, because Jesus is historically 
real, that God's son made his way onto our planet for us, that we're going to live in light of that incredible news. The gospel is the story that brings it all together. It's not just about those few pages at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the first few pages of your Christian narrative, and you're moving on. That's why we've entitled this series, The Gospel According to This Old Book That Was Lived Out Way Before Jesus Ever Came Onto the Scene. The Gospel According to Daniel, because the entire narrative of Scripture is about God saving people. It's about God redeeming. It's about a God who says, you're in captivity, I'm going to set you free. So the gospel is all over the Bible, and what we want to be able to do is show you those little places that bring the narrative together and show us that what we're really longing for and waiting for is the good news that finds its fullness in Jesus. So Lord Jesus, as we jump into this text today, may our hearts burn within us for a different way of life and a different way of thinking, a different way of speaking, a different way of loving that's marked by two things, repentance and deep joy. Meet with us. Show us how deeply we need you, that we might not just come in here one day a week for 35 minutes to listen to your word, but that we would orient everything around Jesus. Meet with us, we pray, in your name. Amen. All right. The book of Daniel. It was written during one of the great declines in Jewish history. In 587 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was overtaken by the nation of Babylon, and its people are taken into exile and captivity. If you're unfamiliar with the Christian scripture or this book, that detail is very important as you listen to this read and reread over the next few minutes. This is in the context of exile and captivity a dark moment in Jewish history, and we have this idea that the captivity has beginning or is beginning with the educated and the elite members of Jewish society being deported. Daniel is one of those people who was probably taken in the first wave of deportation. He's got three friends that we're introduced to in chapter one. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These guys are young. Most commentators think they're in their early to mid-teens, 13 to 18 years old. You think that they're probably uh, young like me, right? What how old do you think I am, right? <laughs> young like me, but they're much younger than me. They're actually closer to my son's age. He's turning 13 this year. Can I imagine that this young man's family has been taken apart, broken down. Many of his closest friends have been killed. He's been taken in exile and captivity because he's part of a royal family or a upwardly mobile family, very well educated and elite, and they're taking those people first. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah have been brought into the Babylonian indoctrination and formation machine where they are educated for three years in the ways that are designed to alienate them from all things familiar, including their faith. Very important detail. That's what's going on in these first three years. Babylonian indoctrination, a formation machine, mind, spirit, uh, traditions, behavior, so that they would enter Jewish, but they would leave Babylonian, right? So that's the context of these Three years. These young men are living in a hostile, secular, pagan environment that was both pluralistic and unsympathetic to their religious convictions. So Daniel and his friends, as we said last week, are now at home 
in Babylon. But what we're taught is that they don't simply accommodate to a Babylonian vision of reality, but they maintain their commitments to this God. And you start to get a glimpse of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a pagan, secular, pluralistic moment. That I'm actually called to go in deep, but I'm also called to have deep convictions. That when people look at my life, they don't say, oh, he stands against culture in all things that are foreign and different. But nor has he accommodated so that all of the distinctions of his faith are completely gone and watered down. You don't see either of those polarities within the book of Daniel, but you see somebody who says, this place is different. They value different things. They worship different gods. But I'm going in deep but I'm going to live with distinction. And what the end of chapter 1, we're going to get to this here today, what the end of chapter 1 shows us is that difference is better. That when you live with distinction, with God at the center of your life, who orients all of your ways in the world, that these young men, they end up being healthier and wiser. This is what God does for them. He makes them healthier in their physical appearance, in their bodies, but he also makes them wiser with regards to their character because they follow God's ways in the world. And so let me break that down for you into three headings. Number one, we're going to look at the theme of discernment. Wisdom is all over chapter one and then throughout this book. So the theme of discernment is part of the end of this chapter, orientation in the world, and then the difference it can make. So discernment, orientation, and difference is what we're going to look at today. Now, throughout Daniel chapter 1, if you have a Bible or a phone app, I'd love for you to have it open. The chapter's a little bit long. We're, of course, we're in the second half, but if you look at the first half and then going into the middle and then the end, there is this phrase that gets repeated throughout the book, throughout the chapter, uh, three times in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17, we read this phrase, God gave, all right? God gave. This book has, I think, 12 chapters. We're not going to make it through all of them in this series, but the the name of God is only referenced in chapter 1. But God's hand of sovereignty, God's hand of control, that he's controlling men and women and history and kings and nations, you see the foundation of that here in chapter 1 through this phrase, God gave. In verse 2, we read that God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, God did that. Then in verse 9, we find that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. We read that this morning. And then verse 17, we read that God gave Daniel and his three friends learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. All right, so God is giving. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 17. At this point in the story, you remember that Daniel has been separated from everything familiar. He's been distanced from all of the members of his immediate family. Many of his, been, of his friends have been killed in the Babylonian a rampage of the city of Jerusalem, and he's being indoctrinated in the ways and traditions and the arts and the literature of Babylon. And at the end of these three years, the text tells us that, tells us that Daniel and his three friends, that they stand in front of the king for evaluation. How did we do in indoctrinating them? How wise are these young men? How prepared are they to get government jobs and to work within the machine called Babylon? And verse 19 tells us that none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's important. And then look at verse 20. Verse 20 tells us that the king found them 
10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And these guys are competing against the locals. All right, you go to Hawaii and you try to surf, you got to come and compete against the local talent. These men are competing against the local wise men who have been educated with them. These are Jewish outsiders so that when they're evaluated after three years, the text tells us that they were seen by the king as 10 times better than all of the people of wisdom and learning within the Babylonian culture, within the system that had been set up. These guys are seen as heads above everybody else. These guys are skilled. They're gifted, they're intelligent young men, but the text goes out of its way to let us know that their own work ethic and their own IQ and intelligence weren't enough to account for their success. Remember, we're reading this phrase over and over again that says, God gave them learning and all wisdom, right, and all the literature and all the things that they put their mind to, God is there giving them this insight. And here's what the text is helping us to pull out. This is so significant. These men had become masters of Babylonian wisdom, seeing through it rather than being mastered by it. See the difference? These men on the other side of three years of learning about Babylon and what it valued were seen to be men of wisdom and insight and discernment. Even the king goes, man, I got nobody like these four guys. Nobody can see what they can see. They weren't mastered by the Babylonian worldview. They had become masters of it so that they could see through it to determine what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is right, and what is wrong. So that when the king says, man, when these guys speak, I'm listening. The most powerful man in the world at the time, stopping and saying, I want to listen to what these men have to say. They had become masters of the worldview that they were a part of, not mastered by it. They could see through Babylon. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us a parable. And this parable begins to contrast the themes of wisdom versus folly. This is Luke 6, 46. Jesus is speaking. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. When you hear Jesus speaking these words in this particular parable, in my opinion, it's a pretty simple one. There are other more complex things that Jesus says. This is a pretty simple parable. What he's saying is storms are inevitable, and the one whose home was built on the rock endured the winds and the waves, while the home that was built on the sand lacked a foundation, and it was swept away. Thank you, Jesus. The wise man built his house on the rock, while the foolish man built his house On the sand, here's the difficult part of this parable. Almost nobody that you've ever met would intentionally say, I'm going to build a life, I'm going to build a home, I'm going to build a sense of meaning on something that's going to get swept away. I'm going to build on something firm. I'm finding the foundation for my life, my family, my home. And yet, 
we see plenty of people whose lives are collapsing under the pressures of modern society, which means that the bigger issue is actually one of wisdom, namely our ability or inability to discern the difference between rock and sand. You see this. Plenty of people's lives are falling apart because they have said, I'm going to build on whatever I want to build on. I think it's going to be a solid foundation for me. It's not if it's not God. It's not if it's not the God who made you. That's what this story is trying to get you to see and to think about. And the gospel's being told in Daniel, and Jesus just rearticulates the same thing. Let me show you where life is best lived. God designed our lives to flourish when we build on the rock-solid foundation of his word and his ways and his presence. But we get lost, we get confused, and we get hurt when we build on the wrong foundations. Author and social commentator, his name is Mark Sayers. I encourage you to look him up. He has a great podcast called Rebuilders. I really like Rebuilders podcast. Recently, I was listening, and he used a helpful phrase when he talks about the need to build up what he calls our discernment capacity, all right? Our discernment capacity. The pace at which change has been taking place in American and Western society around issues like, just let me list a few of them for us, gender, race, politics, tribalism, rage and cancel culture, pandemic-related politics, gun control, immigration, and global warming, just to name a few, means that we have to have a high discernment capacity. And these are the big issues going on out there. But what about the more personal issues in your life, right? The personal things that you bumped up against this morning before you got in your car, relationships, at work, and rest, and limits, and friendship. And marriage, whoever said that marriage was going to be so hard? I have an incredible marriage. I love Danielle to death. But marriage and parenting is hard work. Finances, power. Christians ought to be the ones contributing this sort of social capital. But sadly, we are just as big a part of the problem. How many times do you have a conversation with somebody and you stop and go, that's just not wise? Like, why did you say that? How many of you, my, I've exposed my children to Survivor recently, all right? I don't know if we should have done this. Some controversial themes in Survivor. I think we're on season 30 or something, all right? And, and my kids and I, we're, we're watching. Man, we're like yelling at the screen on this season. There's some people who are so controversial. But you think to yourself, who lets you on Survivor? You have no discernment capacity, What are you doing saying that, wearing that, acting like that, speaking like that? People are saying the craziest things. I mean, but you have had those conversations, but you have to be on Survivor to notice people lack wisdom. Why'd you do that? Like, why'd you say that? Why did you post that? That's just not wise. Just not wise. Building up what the Bible calls a discernment capacity. Like Daniel, we live in a time where God is calling us to see through Babylon, to understand the values of the moment that we are living in, cultivating social and emotional and vocational, cultural, technological discernment. 
Think about that. I have been confronted with that as my children are going into middle school, and all of their friends have gotten smartphones. All of a sudden, my wife and I have had to have a conversation about technological discernment. What are we going to do when everybody else is putting the pressure on our family to keep up? Right? All of you are confronted with different things that you have to make decisions about. So did they. But what Daniel is going to say to us by the end of this is, God's way is better. All right? God's way is better. Part two, orientation. Number one, discernment. Part two, orientation. As I've said before, let's remember that Daniel displays remarkable courage and resilience in a moment where it could have been a lot easier to experience disorientation and confusion and compromise. I doubt any of us would have faulted Daniel for a momentary crisis or a long-term crisis of faith at this point. He has been taken against his will into the hands of a foreign superpower. He's being educated in many ways against his will. He's being employed against his will. He's been given a new name. He's being renamed and given a new identity. And yet he's trying to figure out what does it mean to be inundated with new ideas, all of these opinions being fed a diet of Babylonian perspectives on truth and yet have a discernment capacity. How does he do this? This ability to be discerning about what Daniel brought into his life, brought to the center to help him make sense of the world he's living in. You may recall from last week that Daniel needed to draw a line in the sand at some point in this conversation. Early in the chapter, he draws a line in the sand regarding the food that he ate. And you remember that it has less to do with the Jewish kosher laws than it did with the fact that he's saying to himself, if I eat the food and drink the wine that's being set in front of me, meal after meal, day after day, I know what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go from learning about the Babylonian value system to adopting the, the, the Babylonian value system. He understands his own heart. And so he has to draw a line in the sand. Wine is not uh, outlawed according to Jewish uh, dietary laws. And so the commentators all stop and say, maybe some of these things are outside of the Jewish kosher laws. Maybe some of, the, some of these things have been sacrificed to idols. But most likely, Daniel knows his own heart. And he says, if I eat like that, I'll begin to think like that. So he has discernment. He says, i got to draw a line. Again, how old is this young guy? Most likely in his mid to late teenage years, all of this public pressure around him. And he says, because of my commitments to this God, I'm going to have to draw a line in the sand and say, my commitment is not first to the king of Babylon, but first to the king of heaven. Daniel orients his life around his commitments to God. And in turn, God blesses these young men with wisdom. That's not a health and wealth gospel. That's what happens when you're in relationship with the God of wisdom, that if you commit your life to him, if you listen to him and his ways in the world, he will bless you. He will give you wisdom for the life that you are living. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, a book of wisdom, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom, your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Part of what the Bible teaches is that wise, skillful living has a starting point. 
And the starting point, according to Proverbs chapter 9, is this thing that we learn about called the fear of the Lord. This has less to do with being afraid of God, and some of us in the room are afraid of God. We think that he's out to get us. This is not what this is teaching us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom has less to do with being afraid than it does with honoring God. Honor your lo- the Lord your God, and this is the starting point of wisdom. But practically, how do we honor a God that you can't see and you can't touch? Well, we orient our lives around him. One writer, Brett McCracken, says it like this. At the end of the day, wisdom is less about information than orientation. All the geographic data points in the world are useless if we have no sense of north. All of us wander in whichever nomadic direction our hearts choose until we submit to the authority of God's good compass. See, each of us, whether you're a Christian in the room or a non-Christian in the room, each of us develop a sense of true north through the orientation mechanisms that we adopt. Write that phrase down, an orientation mechanism. An orientation mechanism is the thing that we look to to make sense of the data points in our lives, the things that we rely on to tell us that life is headed in a meaningful direction. Now, here in the West, our society is governed and kind of ruled and dominated by a trio of orienting values. Those three values are, number one, freedom, number two, autonomy or independence, and number three, happiness. Okay, these are the orienting values of the moment that we are living in. Am I free to be myself? Or am I constrained by the rules and the expectations and the traditions of somebody else? Because if I'm constrained in any real way, then certainly I can't actually be happy. We are told that true north looks like independence. It looks like freedom and it looks like happiness. And so we adopt mechanisms to orient our lives in those directions. The easiest three to be able to look at and see that people are using are money, sex, and power. These are things that are supposed to be gifts to us. The Bible is not anti-sex, anti-money, or anti-power. In so many ways, those are just neutral gifts that God gives us. The question is, will they orient my life or will God orient my life? When you don't have a king and you're building your own kingdom, then those are the three most natural things for you to grab onto, money, sex, or power. Easy, easy to identify pleasure, profit, or the rise of the religion of politics. I'm looking for a bigger narrative. I'm looking for a leader who can help me. I'm looking for a king who can save me. Pleasure, power, politics, and then the idols of the heart, comfort, control, and approval. You know what the Bible calls a life oriented around those things? It calls it unwise, foolish, and sinking sand. And according to Luke chapter 6, which we read a little bit ago, where does it lead? Because storms are always coming. It leads to destruction. Orient your life around money. Give priority to personal pleasure. Get your meaning from your brand of politics. Find your worth in anything other than the God who made you. And you get lost, wounded, hurt, confused, wondering, how did I get here? 
And how did I get so lost? I thought I was building on the solid foundation. I knew it wasn't God, but I still thought it was going to take me where I needed to go. And the answer is, it's never going to get you there. It's not going to happen. It's an impossibility apart from the God who made you. See, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom, listen, wisdom is being able to see through Babylon and to discern what is most true. And then orienting your entire life around what is most true, right? This bread that's actually going to fill you up and this living water that's going to quench the thirst in your soul, which means that as you're looking for truth, the Bible says this is less of a principle and it's more of a person who says that he is the way and the truth and the life. And Christianity says, orient your life around him. He's true north and he's got a name. His name is Jesus, right? This is what it means to build an oriented life around the gospel. I want to know his character. I want to know his way in the world, and I'm going to build a life around him. When we worship Jesus, when we honor him, when we follow him as disciples and orient around his life, death, and resurrection, only then will we truly be wise, being able to discern what is right from what is wrong, and then see through the storylines that we are living. I'm hungry for that for you. To be able to see through the storylines of what is most true. I've had many conversations this week. It's a really amazing thing. I'd love to sit with you over coffee and tell you the way in which God is bringing people into our life and our orbit who are hungry and hurt, and it is our joy to tell them about something that is better. Right? Sure foundation. Let me show you a couple things that make the difference, and we'll close. So point three, discernment, orientation, part three, difference. The difference it makes in your life and our community when you orient orient around the gospel. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Some commentators have looked at verses 11 through 21. And they have said this is really a wisdom test. Right, the first part of that we looked at last week where Daniel says, I'm not comfortable eating that specific diet and that menu. Can I eat something else? Of course, the chief eunuch who's been placed over them says, this is probably not a good idea. I'm on the hook. If you end up looking poorly, he goes, test us for 10 days. See what happens. Feed us just vegetables. Do not think whole foods, all right? Do not think this beautiful display of vegetables. Some of y'all vegetarians are going, man, I told you. I told you if you just eat veggies, you're going to be way healthier. This is not what the text is saying, all right? They have a limited uh, supply of vegetables. This is not supposed to be something that fills them up and makes them fatter and more beautiful when they eat veggies only. That's not what you're supposed to take away, this kind of a holy version of Weight Watchers, the Daniel diet. I've seen all those weird books. That's not what's going on here, all right? (laughs) Not the Daniel diet, not a holy version of Weight Watchers. It's actually a call to compare the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the Lord. That's what is going on. And the results are a reversal of what would have been expected. 
You're going to feed us richly from the king's table, all of those meats and all of those wines. We're going to say no, and we're going to come over here and eat the limited amount of vegetables that we have provided for us. And at the end of 10 days, we're going to end up looking better. See, it's a reversal of expectation. That's what you're supposed to take away. The wisdom offered by the Lord is different than what's offered by the world, but where they are different, what the Lord gives is better, okay? Where they are different, what the Lord gives is better. Christian, let me speak to the Christian for a moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That what the Lord gives is better. There are competing visions of reality coming at you related to sexuality or gender or power or politics or money, all sorts of layers of things coming at you about what should be your starting point on reality. Do you believe what God gives you is the better version of the story? Because if you do not, let's go back and go into that. Let's talk about the doubts. Let's talk about the concerns. I do not have all the answers, but I believe that the Bible teaches us over and over again that he's going to give us wisdom when we put him at the center of our life, when we fear him, which means we honor him, which means we orient everything around the king who loves you and gives you his life for you. But the Christian must wrestle with that question. Do I believe that what God offers, when it differs from what the world offers, what God offers me is better? Because it is. And we want to go into that unbelief to see how it's better. Trevin Wax, he writes, Expressive individualism, the moment we're living in, would have us look deep into our hearts to discover our inner essence and express that to the world. But the gospel shows how the depths of our hearts are steeped in sin. It claims that what we need most is not expression, but redemption. The world says we should look inward while the gospel says to look upward. In an expressive individualist society, that message is countercultural, meaning that message is very different. Let me just walk you through those three things and I'll close. Trevin Wax, he talks about the difference of redemption over expression. As Christians, we believe what individuals and communities need more than anything else is redeeming. We need healing. We need saving. I'm all for people being able to express themselves. I have a little girl in the middle of the two boys who is extremely expressive. I don't know if it's our fault. We named her Penelope, right? Names and personalities, which is the chicken and which is the egg, I'm not exactly sure. But whatever she's got, she's got it in droves, right? She's got it. She wants to express herself. But what does she need first? What do I need first? What do you need first? And not to say, I got to be free and express my truest self. You want to know your truest self and say, that part of me needs healing. That part of me needs restoring. That part of me needs forgiveness. What we offer to the world is a vision of redemption before self-expression. Number two, a second difference. We look upward before we look inward. Of course, Jeremiah 17, 9, one of the best places to go, talking about the human heart, says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Before we look inward for direction and navigation, we look upward. 
to the Lord for guidance, for direction, for love, for orientation. I'm not going to look inside of me if what's inside of me is looking kind of to the true north that way, but my heart wants to go this way. Why look inside? My heart needs to be reoriented towards the gospel before I can trust it. We look upward. God, you're in control. How do you want me to live? Before I say, it's my right, I do what I want. And that's a difference. Number three, blessing over gaining. In a culture of power plays, waning accountability, and narcissism, Christianity teaches us to give ourselves to others in self-donation and without expectation of a return. How come? How naive of the Christian? Well, maybe. But this is the way of Jesus. Right? That's the way he lived his life. That's the way he governed his life on planet Earth. Giving, blessing, not consuming in order to give to others with no expectation of return. Blessing over gaining. Number four, another difference that the Christian world can offer, Christians can offer to the world. Contemplation over consumption. In a culture of quick, fast, voracious consumption of everything from television to the news to relationships that seem dispensable when you don't need them anymore, Christians are people who spend time with God who study him and his ways, and that practice orients our life individually and corporately for good in the world. Because I slow down and I contemplate this God before I go and take it. I listen, I wait, I have this old school thing called a quiet time with Jesus where I let him speak to me before I go out into the world and consume And then lastly, fourth one, certainty over confusion. In a culture where everything, including our gender, is being redefined by personal preference and feelings, Christianity teaches that God is the giver of identities, and he makes and remakes us in the image of his son. Lots of sensitivity, but a beautiful truth. In a world where there's so much confusion, Christianity does offer this thing called certainty, I know why I'm here. I know who made me, and I have purpose. What would happen if the church embraced these five differences to a world that needs difference? The world would see, I think, that what the church has to offer is actually better. It's better. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than, than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 118 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, that is different. That is different. The gospel seems like foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. That the center of our story is a man who would win through losing. And what Jesus did with his life is he honored his father and he oriented all of his decisions around that, but he also oriented all of his life around saving you. And as he saves you, as he saves me, we're called to orient our lives around him. That's how you build discernment capacity. You fear the Lord, but the Lord has a name, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as I close and just to engage in whatever phrase and whatever idea seems appropriate to you. 
Lord Jesus, as we sit here at the end of Daniel chapter one, we're challenged. Challenged to think well and live well. And we admit that there are orienting mechanisms in our life that have been there a long time. Mechanisms that say, look at me, aren't I worthy? Look at me, aren't I beautiful? Just anybody, look at me. Will anybody care about me? There is a host of beliefs, visions, and values coming at me that tell me I can find true north if I just self-express, if I'm just independent and unconstrained, if I can just find whatever makes me feel good in the moment, and I will call that happiness. But Lord Jesus, you are bigger than that. You are better than that. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You don't just give good gifts. You give yourself, self-giving God. We see it in Jesus, and we see it in the sending of the Holy Spirit. So come right here, right now, with each of my friends, and orient us again. Change us and make us different. May the orienting mechanisms that have led us away from Jesus in the gospel, may they be exposed for what they are, not truth, but lie. And may we just simply throw up our hands and say, I have hit a wall. Confusion, I'm hurt, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, or maybe the worst case yet, I'm doing really, really good apart from Christ. And it's an illusion. So we just pray for the Spirit of God to reorient our, heart, our hearts, to give us discernment as to what is good, what is true, and what is better. And may we see Jesus for who he really is, the unexpected different God who lays down his life, who orients around saving us so we be brought in. He says, I see you. He says, I love you. He says, I want to be with you. So come in. Change us. May we sing of that grace in his name.